very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. That was Robert uh, Kennedy um, announcing the death of Martin Luther King. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King's birthday. He would be 93 years old uh, had he not been shot and killed. On April 4th, 1968, the civil rights leader and Nobel Peace Laureate was gunned down as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. James Earl Ray, who was had escaped from a Missouri prison in a bread truck, uh, was charged and convicted of the crime. He confessed, and then he later recanted. He died in jail in 1998. Um, many people believe there was more to it than just James Earl Ray. I had the opportunity to interview James Earl Ray in his prison cell, and I have a lot of questions about what really happened and who other what other people were involved or might have been involved. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk to the issue, uh, talk to two authors who have authored a book called Killing King, uh, the multi-year effort to murder Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and our guests are Stuart Wexler and Larry ha- Hancock, who wrote the book and are some of the foremost experts on this issue. They've spent a lot of time researching and writing about this topic. Uh, Larry and Stuart, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having us on. Okay, I think uh, I think I uh, I think I accidentally have uh, Larry off, but he'll he'll come back on. Um, so you know, <laughs> I, I read I read your book, it, and it's very complicated. The the different things that were going on at the time uh, were were there were there were a lot of things going on. Can you kind of remind first of all, just remind us of what happened on that day? We set the stage for the the assassination. So it's April 4th, 1968, and Martin Luther King is in Memphis. He's there for a sanitation strike, a labor strike. And at around dinner time, a shot rings out. He's at staying at the Lorraine Motel, where he often stays with uh, his closest colleagues, people like uh, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Jesse Jackson. He's shot on his way out to go to someone in Memphis for dinner and people point across the street. Uh, it's in the direction of a building called Bessie Brewer's rooming house. And that becomes the focus of the investigation as it goes forward as the potential shooting location or somewhere there around there. Okay. And let's also uh, set the stage for the atmosphere in this country. And this is what you do in your book. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, I was uh, like four years old when this happened. So I have no recollection of the undercurrent of racism that was going on. Can you sort of set the stage for what was going on? I know the, the Voting Rights Acts had just been passed. Uh, so there was movement in the right direction for fairness for minorities. But, but there was still a lot of unrest and a lot of uh, splinter groups. So let's take that day, April 4th, 1968, and let's place it in a larger context. So he's there for a labor strike, a sanitation strike, but it's the second time in as many weeks that he's there because on the last visit, it turned violent. He's there because he's about to lead an anti-poverty campaign, the Poor People's Campaign, and he has to prove that nonviolence still works. And that's because for the last several years up to that day, The country had been experiencing wave after wave of urban riots, some call them rebellions, connected to race and poverty. A group King once worked with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 
has changed its name to the Student National Coordinating Committee because they no longer embrace nonviolence as a philosophy. King is speaking one year after he publicly condemned America's violent role in Vietnam, but just six months after the most violent anti-Vietnam protests in the United States at that point against Dow Chemical occurred. And unknown to King and anyone at that time, the Pentagon is preparing a secret major plan what amounts to a counterinsurgency, not for Vietnam, but for inside the United States. The FBI is privately musing about a black messiah leading a domestic Tet Offensive. When I, when I refer to this period to my students, I call it the age of social upheaval, the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s. 68 was probably the worst year. And as we'll get into, there was one group of people that in our book, Killing King, we highlight who saw this upheaval not as a problem, but as an opportunity and assassinating MLK as the means to get there. And in your book, you made it clear that it wasn't all just the the issue of racism, although obviously that was very uh, prominent. But that, but the, the people you know didn't like the anti Vietnam uh, element and anti poverty and and those types of things. So there there wasn't just one reason to hate Martin Luther King. Uh, Larry, thank you. I'm sorry we dropped you, but we're we're just talking about the climate that going on in the 1960s. Um, in, 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 I guess let's 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 flash a little bit then to focus on uh, James Earl Ray. Can someone give me either of you give me a little bio on him and kind of his trajectory on how he ended up uh, being accused and uh, uh, convicted of this crime? Uh, sure, Karen. I think a lot of people, and perhaps when you talk to him, Ray, because of his background and his his life, his. He spoke somewhat uh, as an uneducated person. He had no formal education, uh, and his social background kind of led people to think perhaps that he wasn't all that intelligent. However, actually, Ray had had been had become a career criminal. Uh, as his family was very explicit in the fact that, uh, you know, after the fact, they said he had no racial motives. He wasn't inherently racist. Generally, his life had been all about getting money and getting money without having to have a regular job. Uh, he had done burglaries. He's done, done armed robberies. He had spent years in jail and prison. He had routinely used a variety of aliases and had actually carried out a pretty creative prison escape uh, earlier, uh, not too long, a couple of years earlier, and had tried to leave the entire continent by way of First Canada and then Mexico. And probably the best way to describe Ray was it, he may not have been overly intelligent, but he was he was quite cunning, and he was experienced in all the standard criminal practices, including the use of multiple aliases, false identities, alibis, including alibying against third-party individuals. So he you might think of him as a, a jailhouse lawyer. You might think of him as an experienced criminal. So, according to your book, I think I'm going to paraphrase this correctly, is that James Earl Ray may not have been, racism may not have been his number one issue in life, but but certainly getting money and not working was one. And one of the clearest ways to do that was to get the bounty that may have been offered. And can either of you talk about this idea of a bounty on Martin Luther King's head? Well, I'll let Stu go into that. Stu, you got it. Um, so there were actually several attempts to kill Martin Luther King over time. 
uh, and several of them involved bounty offers. And what happens is the bounty offers go up in value, and I believe that's connected to what these folks are seeing happening in the United States. They're seeing even more of an opportunity to exploit the violence. But what's also happening is these folks are over time being subjected to greater and greater outside surveillance prosecutions. So they have to look to outsiders and criminals and people like James Earl Ray, they're offering, they're floating offers in prison, not just to kill King, but to stalk him and to follow his movements, which is what we think Ray actually embraced. He was always, as his brother said, motivated primarily almost first, second and third by a desire for money. Let's take a break, and when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the actual shooting and some of the conspiracy theories that have been floated around uh, for decades and some of the evidence uh, that has been questioned. I'm here with uh, Stuart uh, Wexler and Larry Hancock, who are the author- authors of a very, very good book. If you're interested in this, you've got to read it. It's called Killing King, the Multi-Year Effort to Murder Martin Luther King. And can one of you tell me where uh, our listeners can get your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon. So that's the simplest way. Just look for Killing King and either of our names, Hancock or Wexler. And then you order it, and it will be there in five minutes. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Welcome back to the Karen County Show. We're talking to Larry Hancock and Stuart Wexler, the authors of Killing King, about the assassination of Martin Luther King. And that speech that you just heard a portion of was actually uh, given by King one day before his um, his uh, assassination. Let's talk a little bit about the assassination itself. It happened about 6 o'clock in the evening. Uh, and can, can one of you tell us a little bit about, in wh- the book, you know, spoiler, alert concludes that James Earl Ray actually was the shooter, but that there may have been others involved in, in the conspiracy or the, uh, the issue of the assassination. But can you tell us a little bit about what the evidence was that uh, James Earl Ray was, in fact, the shooter? Uh, sure. Well, the shooting definitely occurred. Uh, King was shot from across the street with a rifle from the area of the rooming house where Ray was. Uh, Actually, we're kind of on the fence. There's no doubt that Ray was an accessory. He had bought the rifle. He'd carried the rifle into the, the building. What complicates matters is that he had actually taken in a whole trunk full of his personal belongings. And there's every indication he intended to spend some time in the motel, certainly that night. So when the shooting occurred, he was actually forced to throw much of it into a blanket, including the rifle, carry it downstairs, run with it downstairs, where police were about a block away. He had to toss it in the street, make his escape 
by car only minutes before they closed off the street. It it has every indication that if, if he did the shooting, it was very spontaneous because he had no plan for an escape, uh, and he had he had left more of his private belongings back in a hotel room in Atlanta. So he had done none of the normal things you would expect if he was planning to do the shooting. Uh, there was evidence all over the place just because of the aliases that he had routinely used in his career. It took the FBI a while to crack that and link all of the different evidence to him. But uh, I think the call would be that it, we feel that if he did do the shooting, it was a spontaneous act on his part because he knew that the total bounty offer, as Stu said, was for $100,000, where the support role that he appears to have started out in was only $10,000. Uh, and even even his brother later stated, you know, if, if he did that shooting, he would have done it for $100,000. But we don't know that he actually got the $100,000. In fact, do we know if he did? And so the question no, that he, I... Oh, go ahead. No, he didn't. And that's one of the things that suggests that it may have been a spontaneous act. Stu and I, Stu managed to trace actually the money that was being carried for the bounty from Atlanta to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, that's where Ray should have gone after after the assassination to pick it up. Instead, he fled in pretty much the opposite direction back to Atlanta where he had been. Uh, so there's no sign that he attempted to, to connect with the white knights who were really financing the bounty offer. We actually have evidence that when he got back to Atlanta, he tried to contact their representatives in Atlanta who had raised the money, and they wanted nothing to do with him. And bottom line, he had not followed the plan. He, he had left a trail, and that left him in Atlanta where he had to abandon his car and literally flee the country by bus back to Canada where he had previously been when he had tried to escape after his prison break. So, no, there's no sign. He actually ended up in Canada with a relatively small amount of money and no better off than when he had tried to escape from prison earlier. And so this is one of the reasons that it's just so hard for me to believe that he was the assassin, because if you are doing this for money, which we sort of all agree that was probably his motivation here, um, wouldn't you have secured that right? Wouldn't you have like known exactly how to pick up your money uh, and where to go and who to claim it from and and to get the money? And, you know, it it just seems un- unless he's just a hapless criminal who who just didn't plan ahead very well. Hapless well, does sort of describe race. Do you want to take that? Um, he so he he was known to to engage in crimes without having thought through the final elements of the crime. What we're contending is, is that he wasn't recruited to be a shooter. He was recruited to stalk King, for which there is ample evidence and for which he clearly lied about, but that he saw at the last minute the likelihood of getting a much larger share of the money, but he did not know where to get that share of the money. He got likely got some portion of it early on for for again following king's movements he didn't directly from people who were involved but in terms of the bigger pot the evidence there is go look at who he went after for his attorneys that was really right? interesting had, yeah, very interesting right 
because he had two basic groups. One group was a pretty darn good group of what you would call new left attorneys who would be willing to work for him uh, for basically pro bono. But then he kept on getting white supremacist attorneys, even against the, the advice of the new left folks, including somebody, J.B. Stoner, who was somebody who had floated money to try and kill King in the past. And so we see it sort of as a mafia-type situation. He literally and figuratively jumped the gun, couldn't figure out how to get to the rest of the money, and then was trying to use attorneys as sort of go-betweens to try and assure the real backers of the plot that he wasn't going to rat them out, but also so that when he gets released, he can actually collect that money. We have just a little bit of time, but one of the other things that I find so interesting, how did he flee? Okay, everyone was looking for this white Mustang, and within minutes... And he gets out, not only gets out of Memphis, he gets, to, he goes down south and then he's down south and then he goes up to Canada and then he gets on a plane and he goes to England and then he goes somewhere else from there trying to get out of the country, going to a place apparently where they don't have extradition. How does a, a petty criminal have all the paperwork to do all this stuff? Well, I think one of the things that answers that is that he had tried to escape through Canada before. After his prison break, he'd actually spent considerable time in Canada and Mexico. And when he was in Canada, he was under the false, the first time, the false impression that he had to get a sponsor to help get a passport uh, to go overseas. Uh, He actually tried to seduce a young Canadian woman to do that, failed to do it, and ended up back in Canada after the King killing, knowing no more than he did before. And in the end, Ray said, His biggest problem was that he didn't have enough money. If he'd had enough money to fly directly from Canada to Africa, he probably would never have been caught because the FBI was still chasing down his aliases. And literally, he himself said his major problem was he didn't he didn't rob a bank. He didn't do robberies in Canada to get enough cash so that when he ended up in England to go any further, he actually had to do a robbery in England. And so it, it does sound all rather complex until you get into the details. And then, quite frankly, it, it sounds much more like James Earl Ray's entire criminal career, which was not very successful. What finally got him was arrested was the fact that he was carrying a pistol through a London airport. Now, just quickly, I've got a couple more questions. But you, you the, the idea that um, th- could there be more to this? Could it be that the government could do something to open up records so that there could be perhaps DNA or fingerprint testing or ballistics uh, testing to s- fully flesh out what may have happened or or what who may have covered up what happened? I mean, uh, still thinking about the fact that we maybe don't know everything about this crime. So, sure. I would say there are three big things the government can do, and you actually loosely hinted at a bunch of them. We actually started with a crime lab going through fingerprints that were never matched. But there's much more that could be done with that and can easily be done with that if we if we got government support for it. You mentioned files. Um, so there are there were two congressional investigations, a congressional investigation of two crimes, the Kennedy assassination and the King assassination in the late 70s. We have thousands of files on the King on the Kennedy assassination. We have literally zero of those same 
congressional files on the King assassination. And a group that my students have helped put together through a law, my high school students, the Civil Rights Cold Case Records and Review Board, we hope they can get at those records that Congress put together in the late 70s. And finally, I think there are three or four living people who need to go in front of grand juries or a congressional investigation and answer questions. Their names are in our book. Um, and I think they may, some of them may not even realize how much they know. So I think there's plenty that could actually be done with this case if we got the right support for it. Stuart Wexler and Larry Hancock, authors of Killing King, available on Amazon. I highly recommend it. There's a lot of good details, a lot of background, and uh, I wish we had more time. But thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Karen. Thank you for having us. All right. You take care of yourself.